0: We're Ch- here on this Wednesday night, talking COVID. We are back. I had my hiatus. I'm trying to break away from some COVID talk We're bringing it back to you. Those of you that have been following us on social media this week, I'm so excited to bring this show. Tonight, we're doing addiction in the age of COVID-19. My name is Dr. Mark Gomez. Welcome back. I'm a board-certified internal medicine physician at the Board Hospital of Illinois, Check me out on my website, www.drmarkomas.com. I'm also an advocate of hashtag lifestyle medicine. I'm so excited to have everybody back here this evening. I'm social distancing, got my swag. You guys should be doing it too. We're social distancing tonight, talking about addiction in the age of COVID-19. We're here today to bring the thunder. And each week, as we always do, on To with Dr. G, it's my goal to really connect you with the experts that are out there practicing whatever we're doing. Tonight's experts are fierce, and we're going to, I'm going to introduce you to them in a few moments. But really, we're continuing this conversation. We took a little bit of a break from COVID, but for the next three weeks, we're going to be bringing you real stories, have real talk about the impact that COVID-19 has had on all of our lives we've all had some skin in the game there's no doubt about that it's all and it's all affected us in different ways but we're going to talk about it so i'm so excited to get things off tonight with my addiction and covid-19 show and really today yes you know we have a serious tone of everything we're talking about your health and your well-being but at the end of the day i want you to have all the tools necessary for continued health success for you your family, and your loved ones. So what I wanna do, of course, is welcome everybody back and meet the guests in a few moments. Like we do every week show, we're all about, bring, about about really bringing you the truth at the end of the day. We're all about delivering trust and delivering truths. So here's what we're gonna to do today. Um, you're gonna to meet just an amazing panel and we're gonna have some real co- co- good conversations about what's going on and how the impact of what COVID-19 is. But before we get into that, let me hit you with a quick disclaimer. The content of To Your Health with Dr. G is for informational entertainment purposes only, and that the content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Further details can be found at www.drG.com/slash-disclaimer. So here we are today. We're talking about a very important topic. And as you know, right now, the impact of COVID-19 has affected everyone. And we know that some populations have been affected more than others. Today, we're going to to be talking about the population that's already been stigmatized, marginalized, and underserved when it comes to access to proper health care. At the end of the day, everyone, in my opinion, everyone deserves equal and equal access to health, equitable treatments that are out there. And certainly this, this, this pandemic that we're in has certainly thrown us for a couple of loops. We're really here to try to set the record straight and talk about the opportunity that's still there. And we're going to talk about this with some great guests. So what I want to do is, of course, introduce my first guest today. He's been on the show before, uh, and he's a really good friend of mine, longtime friend, colleague. He and I actually met a number of years ago uh, when we were doing some work on the hospital uh, opioid crisis. Uh, subcommittee. And so that's really, we got to really see a lot of each other uh, and really bounce ideas about how can we make things better? How can we make sure that people that are marginalized get the same access to treatment? How can we help people for those that are in need? So I want to introduce my good friend, longtime friend and colleague, Dr. Aaron Weiner. I want to read his because his credentials run deep. Dr. Aaron Weiner, PhD, ABPP, is a board-certified psychologist and director of addiction services at Linden Oaks Behavioral Health. Check him out, www.ehealth.org. Dr. Weiner, welcome back to the show.
1: Thank you so much, always a pleasure to be here. Excited to talk about this important subject.
0: Hey, Dr. Weiner, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you do your training and a few opening words about this topic of addiction?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, I got my doctorate from University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. uh, did my pre-doctoral internship and post-doctoral uh, fellowship in addiction psychology in the VA system. Um, right now, I'm the director of addiction services at Lyndon Oaks Behavioral Health. Um, addiction has been the focus of my career uh, since I launched it like you said, uh, folks who suffer from addiction are already in a population that has difficulty advocating for itself and has stigma that runs very deep. And what we're seeing right now, unfortunately, and I know we'll get into this in the show, is that this pandemic has actually just compounded the challenges in terms of receiving care, uh, getting peer support, lots of things. And so it's a really important topic to uh, address tonight. And thanks for having me on.
0: Hey, you guys, it's been a pleasure to be back I mean, until we get a little more granular on some of the substantive matter at hand. I want to introduce you guys to my next guest. They are a power couple, and I had to get a shout out in my video blog yesterday, but it's, it's we we're recent acquaintances. Uh, but, but when we had our connection, we really connected hard. And I want to thank actually Dr. Weiner for actually trying to connect us all again. I really believe that. We are here with a common purpose uh, to really serve our fellow, our fellow citizens, our fellow human being, uh, and so it's amazing how the world kind of works. Certainly during times of crisis, where people can still come together and unite around a common theme of hope and recovery and survival. So I want to introduce Power Couple. I want to introduce some awesome Brad and Jessica. Gurkey, Let me read their credentials. And they got a little bit of separate credentials, but I want to read I want them their, their, their due time. So I want to read their credentials individually. So I want to introduce Brad Gurkey. Uh, he is co-founder 516 Light Foundation. Check him out, www.516lightfoundation.org. He's also director of treatment center of Chicago. He's an appointment member of DuPage County Hope Task Force. He's also recovery coach with the Naperville Police Department Connection for Life program. He's also recovery advocate and speaker. I want to introduce Brad, uh, there in a second, I want to just introduce Jessica is awesome, powerful, Jessica Gerke. She's also co-founder of 516 Light Foundation, www.516lightfoundation.org. She's intake supervisor at Banyan Treatment Center, Chicago, recovery coach, Naperville Police Department, Connect for Life, and recovery advocate and speaker. Brad and Jessica, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having us. It's an honor to be able to come on and spread some hope and come together during this time.
0: Wonderful. Hi Jessica, how are you doing?
2: I'm doing good. I'm very excited
3: to be here.
0: <laughs> well, well please tell us a little bit about your guys's background and a few opening words on why this topic is so important to you.
2: I think this topic is so important to us in a time of a pandemic and just in normal times because there unfortunately are a lot of people passing away from drug overdoses. So anything that we can do to get out there and spread awareness, education and, and resources uh, we want to jump to the plate and be able to help. Be that, be that, um, that source or that that resource to be able to help people during this time um, and in normal times as well.
0: Awesome, Jessica. A few opening so, words on this topic from your end.
3: Absolutely. So, you know, Dr. Aaron Weiner said, "You know, got his credentials." Who's like thinking? I got my credentials on the streets of Rockford. So, you yeah, know, I'm in long-term recovery. 11 years sober. Uh, I'm a student, a shout out. I hope some of my oh. fellow peers, I told them, please tune in because they've been super supportive this semester. Uh, Brad and I had uh, launched the foundation officially this year, and we're very excited to kind of bring resources to the community, spread awareness, and just kind of get out there and, and be with the people and, and, you know, in this desperate time because it, it's definitely needed.
0: <clears throat> Wonderful. Well, thank you both for coming on. Now you guys have not You met our guests. And let me say this, before we get into the question of the hour, the, the situation where we're going, Chief Complain, I want to say this. In, in times of crisis, uh, we know that people may turn to addictive habits as a way to cope. We all may have a different way to cope, but I want to make sure it's that the same people that are already stigmatized because of choosing substances that are already underserved, I want to make sure that those people have access. Those people might be facing the same barriers that are out there from the get-go, and it can be compounded, as Dr. Weiner mentioned a few moments ago, during this time of crisis. So, uh, when people come into the office, we call it the chief complaint. Uh, you like that one, Dr. Weiner? Uh, the chief complaint, aka the question hour. So, here's what we're doing, dealing with. We're talking about a population that's at risk, and it's been most more so during this pandemic. So, here's a question: How have current public health measures impacted addiction rates? In addition, how do we best balance these measures with the essential support services needed by those living with addiction? So I want to start with this. I want to just have Dr. Weiner kind of get an over. I'm also going to have Brad and Jessica chime in too. But Dr. Weiner, in your own words, you know, when you hear the word addiction, what does that mean?
1: Yeah, yeah. So we, we look at addiction as something that has got a biological component, a psychological component, and a social component, so a biopsychosocial problem. And so it's, it's not just a brain disease, although that's certainly part of what goes on when you're in active addiction. There's all these components. And so it creates this, this web that's very difficult to get out of. And that's part of why for a lot of folks to get out of it, they do need to go to some sort of treatment service. It's by, by the time it really takes hold of you, it's, it's nothing near a choice anymore.
0: Brad and Jessica, why don't you on the word addiction, when you guys hear that word, what does it really mean to you?
2: When I hear the word addiction, especially when it comes to substance use disorder, <laughs> I think of it in a couple of different ways. But for me, in my story, I was unable to break the cycle of stopping. I would have every uh, desire to want to stop. I would be able to take a lie detector test if it was available. When somebody would ask me, Brad, do you ever want to use again? I would say, my God, no. I would pass it with flying colors. But then two hours later, there I am getting high trying to figure out what happened. I've kind of come to understand it as uh, an allergy of the body, right? (laughs) Me being an alcoholic and drug addict, the minute I put something into my system, my body reacts uh, differently than a non-alcoholic or drug addict. I get a physical uh, reaction. Right, a physical allergy to where my body craves more of the same um, and if that were the only problem i just wouldn't pick it up but me being a drug addict alcoholic when i'm stone cold sober my mind tells me somehow some way someday i'll be able to control and enjoy my drinking and my using so i go ahead and i take the action i pick up a substance i unleash that allergy and further down the spiral i go i wake up the next morning full of shame guilt and remorse i don't like the way that i feel So I search for the sense and ease and comfort of a drink or a drug, therefore, continuing the cycle uh, indefinitely until I have some kind of rock bottom or some kind of uh, intervention that comes and pulls me out of that situation, like Aaron was talking about, getting into treatment, be able to get uh, the fundamentals, the foundation, and be set to some kind of road to recovery with the needed support. Me alone, I cannot do it.
0: And Jessica? Yeah.
3: When I think of addiction, just kind of bouncing off of what Brad said, he talked about that physical aspect of addiction. What I'd like to focus on is that mental comes with addiction. And in my own experience, I think the best way to explain it is when I'm talking to a group of people is uh, have you ever felt nervous? Have you ever wanted to, you know, had that fight or flight feeling? Well, that's what it feels like to be an addiction, to be uncomfortable in your own skin. So what do you do mentally? You want to get out of that, that frame of mind. Yeah. So the, there's these words that say that the main problem centers in the mind rather than the body. So that's where the work needs to be done. Therefore, you know, going into places like treatment and getting therapy or actively working a 12-step program are absolutely crucial because we have to change our way that we perceive drug use. You know, you wanna get out of self, you wanna stop feeling like uncomfortable in your own body. Um, and, and this is an important piece where those services that are needed come in.
0: Wonderful, thank you, Jessica. From, from an internal medicine standpoint, uh, I tell people this, addiction is just as real as atherosclerosis, as heart disease, as hypertension, as diabetes, cancer. And when you talk about the motivator, the drug itself becomes the single most powerful motivator in somebody's existence that deals with this. Dr. Weiner, break it down for us a little bit, just in simple terms, about the effect of the drug on somebody's brain. What happens to make that kind of connection, as I said, it becomes a single most powerful motivator for somebody's existence? What happens in the brain?
1: Yeah, well, well, So, as as Brad and Jessica mentioned, your brain actually does react differently. So once you hit that point where your body develops a, a dependency on it, when you're presented with the drug, even maybe the images of it or something you associate with it, like a place or a person, those sorts of things, your brain lights up in a way different than it did before. And that reward pathway just gets burned in and burned in. And then actually what happens as well is that other things in your life that might give you pleasure and might be motivators start to fade away and they stop being as important to you. And so there's this really strong biological draw to it that gets people thinking that certain ideas make sense when they're in active addiction that anyone from the outside or even they themselves, when they're not in the middle of it, might not think is the case anymore. And so that that really is the, the, the central part biologically of what's going on with addiction. Beyond that though, the psychological end of it, it's actually kind of interesting when you think about it. One of the hardest aspects about getting yourself to the place where you're ready to stop is connecting your use with the negative consequences in your life, because unlike with other things that cause harm, like if you've got a kid and they touch a hot stove, that's like ow, right? And maybe they do it maybe like one more time, but then they're like, that, that burns me. But with, with drugs and alcohol, it's kind of, it's, it's almost like the first few times, maybe it even feels good. And then the pain doesn't come until later. And so you really have to find a way to connect what you're doing with those negative consequences. And sometimes that takes a long time. By then your brain's already made the change.
0: So as, as, we're, as we're seeing here now, and I wanna link this, thank you Dr. Winder for breaking that down. As we see now, I wanna link this into what we're really dealing with, the elephant in the room, we're all, um, we're all in place, all dealing with the pandemic, we all have got skin in the game uh, with, this, uh, with this pandemic going on. You know, if anything that's happened, this pandemic has really brought to light a lot of dysfunction or exposed some of the dysfunctional uh, aspects of the healthcare system as know, whether it's from the healthcare itself and who gets care from support services that are now being closed or things like that. But but it's been exposed and we have to deal with this reality. So let me ask this question to Brad. You know, we know that people have been always struggling with substance abuse, substance use and abuse disorders for a long time now. And now we're seeing some rises, rising in the trends. Do we know why people may choose to go down this pathway in a time of crisis?
2: Good question. Um, I think a lot of it has to do, whether it's somebody that's just newly engaging in addiction or, or alcoholism or going down that path uh, due to boredom, the isolation, um, or having financial insecurity. Um, and then also with somebody in recovery or actively using as well. Um, a lot of the, the isolation, um, the, the the boredom, the, the fear, the um, not really having certainty in the future right now um, and just kind of picking up and engaging and passing time. I've seen uh, unfortunately some posts and stuff like that on Facebook and whatnot with different drinking games or having quarantinis or you know just kind of different ways of them being able to uh, socially gather on, on through Facebook or something going uh, to d- different drinking parties and what.
0: Uh, Jessica, let me ask you this question, yeah, and I'd like you to turn on that. From your perspective, and especially when you're doing a lot of work as an intake supervisor and you're seeing people come in, you know, how have you guys? First of all, let me ask you this question, Jessica. How have you guys been impacted? Has has this impacted your way to conduct business as usual? Are you able to still see people face face, or had to kind of change your approach to reach people? Yes, we have
3: been affected as a whole as far as providing services, uh, people are scared. Uh, you know, this is a, a great excuse why not to go get treatment as well. So you're, you're fighting against a couple of things here. Uh, you know, people coming in, they're not unsure of the surrounding, if you had any cases of COVID, so there's that lingering. Um, the screening process is much more um, thorough, therefore it prolongs someone Getting into treatment, rightfully so, we want to protect everybody that's in treatment along with the staff. Uh, so that process has slowed, slowed down. And in some cases, you know, we have to do it virtual. So it changes the way we approach an intake process, where it's usually more, you know, one-on-one basis, shaking a hand, welcoming, just taking a few minutes to be in that the same room with it, that person and let them relax because a lot of anxiety is surrounded walking into treatment. So, yeah, uh, we have certainly been affected. And in some cases, um, unfortunately, some treatment centers are unable to provide services at this time.
0: Now, one now, of the things that I, sorry, one of the things I have been dealing with as a, as a, as a physician, as I switched to telehealth and telemedicine, is, is it's been a harder for me to to really, even though I've known a lot of my patients for a long time, I have to kind of take a step back and say, hey, you know, I have to make sure I ask you about how you're doing, like, how are you doing? And, and with, with sincerity too, not just to say, hey, how are you doing? How's the, how are you doing? How are you, How are you handling uh staying at home or you're handling knife you to teach your child uh, or now i'm handling you know i'll recently lay off from work for something like that but i have to now f- just try to consciously tell myself ask them about hey, have they been sleeping have they been feeling on edge lately so i just like to ask those kind of questions so dr weiner let me ask you this how would you start you know you know if people are out here listening to us and they're worried about something or they're worried about me falling into a bit a bad habit of addiction or, or temptations there. How do, we, how do we stop that from happening? How do you identify somebody in the process, give them the tools now remotely, and then hopefully that they succeed?
1: Yeah. Well, so I think that awareness and knowledge is really the, the most important part. I mean, so I've actually been doing a lot more telehealth since COVID started as well, and I've been taking on new patients. Um, and it's been, uh, certainly anxiety has been a, a major issue for just about everybody. But it's been really interesting to hear how many people have actually gone to alcohol who might not have been doing it before and have been using it to try to cope with, with their stress. Um, I, I think the first, you know, what's what's useful though is that when they're talking to me, it's usually not actually for the alcohol right now, it's for the anxiety, but I ask as part of the assessment what's what's going on with drinking and we can have a conversation about it. I think a lot of people don't realize how much is a problem, what's the average amount that someone might be drinking, like the average the average adult male or female might be drinking in a week, and they don't really see how, uh, how high their use has gotten. Um, I think the, the other thing just for those listening or those concerned about someone else in their family is to look into whether or not someone is using a substance to cope. Because, you know, we can talk a lot about, you know, our own opinions about recreational substance use of all different types, you know, alcohol inclusive. However, if someone's using it on a daily basis to cope, that's, um, that's where the real warning flags come off because that's where you start really building up that tolerance that leads you to trouble. One last point I want to add, piggybacking off of Jessica with the fear. I had someone reach out to me actually who was concerned about alcohol and they really needed to go to the emergency department um, as, as part of their detox step um, because of how much they were drinking and they were, they were too scared to go. Um, everyone's seen the pictures, everyone's seen the news about how things are overflowing and it's like very few people would, would knowingly would want to put themselves in there, but at the same time, alcoholism can kill you as, as Brad could probably tell us more about. I mean, it's, it's very serious. And so it really creates this conflict for folks who need help.
0: I always tell, I've been trying to tell people maybe hospital systems, health systems could have been better at the messaging um, at, the on, at the onset. You know, we were saying, stay away, stay away, stay away, stay away. We don't overcrowd our households and overutilize uh, uh, the resources there. And that may have actually compounded some of the fear where they say, oh, oh my gosh, the hospitals are gonna see an influx of all these people and I don't wanna get sick myself, but I will, t- will assure you that uh, healthcare systems wanna save is our number one priority. I've actually been telling people all along that, that business as usual. I mean, we are open for business, but I think health systems could have been better and should do better at saying, we prioritize safety from all costs, from not only our patients that we may see, our staff and our providers as well, too, and say, we are open. We've taken unprecedented measures to make sure that the environment is safe and come from there. Uh, Brad, let me ask you this question, you know, piggybacking off what Aaron's saying, what are some kind of warning flags, or, or if you see somebody that may be d- diving towards this pathway, how can we get them out in this, in this, in this era now where we're doing a lot more distancing?
2: I'm sorry, what was that last part you broke up? How
0: are we getting people out of this era? I mean, how are we giving people the tools from your end to deal with this new era of social distancing?
2: It still broke up again. Oh, I sorry. Sorry. You uh, I, was
0: gonna, I was trying to say, how are we getting people the tools necessary during this era of social distancing?
2: Yeah, so I mean, for people that are in recovery, uh, they're doing 12-step Zoom meetings and stuff like that. Um, through through the treatment center that we're doing, we're doing some uh, telecounseling, like Jessica was talking about. Um, we're also giving people when they're in treatment, they're all supposed to be wearing masks, which they are. Washing hands um, even before admission, we're doing a COVID antibody test, which tests for the IgG and the IgM, um, just to make sure that everything's safe. But some of the tools I think that people could be using is reaching out to people that are also in recovery, finding sponsors, getting plugged in with uh, with the Sober Network. Um, they're, they're all over social media right now. There's different pages that are forming. Uh, reach out to the 516 Light Foundation. We'll be able to connect you guys through that as well. Uh, for anybody that's watching and needs help, um, that's something we're very big on doing is kind of being the Google of uh, addiction and recovery, you know, to be able to point people in the right direction so they get the help that they need.
0: Aaron, let me come back at you with this This question, um, do you know if people, you know, just from a general standpoint, are there any factors that predispose somebody uh, to addiction?
1: Yeah, you know, so we've actually found that there are genetic factors to it. It's something that can be passed down, certainly, so that if you're exposed to the substance, you're more likely to be addicted with with less of that exposure. But then a lot of it also is modeling. Um, where if someone in your family is doing it, it seems normal if, it's, if there's a permissive attitude. And then far and away in terms of psychiatric concerns, trauma and childhood trauma is the number one thing where if you've gone through some very difficult times in your young life, trying to figure out how to cope with that when you're then entering into your teenage years and, and the availability of drugs become more, that seems to really move people towards using and using to excess to the point that they become addicted.
0: Jessica, you know, somebody doesn't start by, somebody doesn't send a boom at their snap of their fingers, become a compulsive uh, substance, use, uh, substance abuse user. Um, you know, you, you obviously the, the first step is a voluntary behavior, but how does that become, maybe somebody may have be a voluntary alcohol, as Aaron mentioned, alcohol consumption's up during this, co- during this pandemic, but how does somebody go from being a temporary user or a voluntary user to more of a compulsive user? And how can else, some other ways to stop that process in its tracks?
3: There's a, a speaker that I listened to one time and he said, um, I don't know when I became an alcoholic, but I know I was drunk when I crossed the line. So, <laughs> uh, and it makes perfect sense. I think uh, it's very, it should be known that, you know, no child wakes up and thinks like, I. I want to be an addict that that's not how it works Uh, i believe it's part of your makeup uh you know seeking out a solution through using drugs and alcohol and there's such a huge mental component to it uh just to you know deal with some of the emotions that we just talked about uh isolation loneliness fear resentment um trauma things like that uh you know nothing else or to feel relief other than using a substance for that relief. So over time, when you are, um, when you are, I guess, you know, prone to be more addicted to something, it, it does, it does progress. There is a piece where you cross that line, like that speaker said. You know, I don't know when I became a, an alcoholic, but I know I was drunk and high when I crossed it. And, and that's really important because, uh, you know, you don't know that the big another big piece to it is that there's a delusion. There's a delusional factor and because you don't un- you can't deficiate the truth from the false. You don't understand where, you know, how you're harming your family or um, the amount that you're using. You, you feel like this is a normal life. Uh, I think I lived in that, that dark time for many, many years before the consequences started to catch up with me, jails, homelessness, uh, loss of relationships. And then, then at, just at that point, I was able to say, okay, I have a problem. But I was so deep in, in my addiction by that point, like all the signs were there, but I couldn't see them because I was in that delusional state.
0: There are things when you know we can always Monday morning a quarterback a lot of things that we've done in our past. You know, obviously, we if we don't make mistakes, you know, we can never learn. And 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 I even say I even tell a lot of my patients I've made mistakes along the way myself. Uh, no, it's perfect, but there are certainly the opportunities that are out there. You mentioned Jessica a few moments ago, and I'll have Brad, I'm going to ask this question to Brad, but you mentioned a few moments, I want to piggyback on a, a few words you mentioned, uh, homelessness and incarceration. We know that, that those circumstances certainly exacerbate what we're trying to do now from a COVID-19 uh, perspective of proper social distancing. As a matter of fact, when you have more confined spaces, uh, more enclosed spaces in incarceration or, or not know where you're going to be at by homelessness, it puts you strongly at risk. So let me ask this question to Brad. So how are we really, you know, you know there's a disruption, there's a potential for disruption and for, for people to get these services, especially if they're going from home, home, uh, a shelter to another shelter or happen to be incarcerated. What are some steps that can be done, do you think, from your perspective, to make these situations better?
2: Um, well, I mean, reaching out for help is, is the number one thing to do. And there are people out there, resources that are still accepting people and wanting to be able to, uh, you know, help people through the addiction process. Um, you, I keep, it keeps breaking up. It's hard to hear. I'm uh, sorry. The other part of the That's right. I think,
0: I think you answered a, I think you a great part. I want to ask uh, this to Aaron and transition with that one. Um, you know, Brad mentioned a few moments ago about reaching out uh, for help but we know that some other kind of key services that are out there for people with substance abuse, dis- substance use disorders, like syringe changes, uh, getting clean syringes, um, getting, getting proper medications, those can be disrupted during this time too. What are you seeing from your end when you're working with your clients? Mm.
1: Yeah, well, so, so I think that there's actually been a great outpouring of uh, compassion and help. I think that everyone who's on like the harm reduction front, you mentioned the needle exchanges, fentanyl strips, um, people who are given out naloxone, you know, Narcan, the, the antidote to an overdose. I, I think that all of us who to care about this issue are are aware of how, how important it is to keep ma- making these, putting these things in the hands of, of people who need them. So um, I, I don't think that there's been uh, necessarily any um, reduction in that. In, in terms of people actually being able to get, say, medication-assisted therapy, things like that, I, I know that actually the, the federal government and then also numerous other uh, agencies that are nationwide have released guidance for OTPs, opioid treatment programs, um, and others in terms of how can we continue to provide urine drug screens? How can, if people have to come pick up a dose, can they do that safely? Um, because there is a maintenance aspect of this on the medical side, on the medication side, where we need to make sure that it doesn't fall through the cracks. So I think that if you asked that question maybe six weeks ago, I think that I'd have a different answer for you, but um, as it's gone forward and people, there, there's a great network across the country for this, where we share information and workflows, and so I think we're at a place right now where we're, we're back up to, to functioning properly.
0: Jessica, let me ask you this question. You know, we're talking about obviously some options that are out there, and hopefully some treat, treatment to get people the proper treatment and recovery having had maybe changed our tune a little bit how we how we provide those services. But we know that people do a lot of people may seek service because of maybe it's whether the court orders them to do so or, or a loved one uh, forces them into there or really convinces them. But for every person that comes in for treatment, we know that we're not reaching others that would need treatment. How do we identify those people that need treatment when they might not be hard to they might it might be hard to identify them in the first place. How do we get our message to those that need to hear it?
3: Right. Well, I think it starts with us as a community. Uh, we have to destigmatize what addiction looks like. There's a lot of shame and guilt by coming forward. Uh, your typical housewife who is drinking uh, throughout the day may be shameful to seek services. Uh, You know, um, sometimes, you know, we have services that we're providing in a community and the community doesn't want them there. You know, it's really hard for us to be there for uh, a community and provide services when they're saying, you know, not in my neighborhood. So things like that, it, it makes it difficult to reach the people who are struggling. So what we're doing right now, going live on Facebook and, and being an open book and, and allowing people to know that you don't have to be shameful about, you know, your addiction, that there there is light at the end of the tunnel and there's hope, recovery is possible. We've been there. You know, I'm here saying like, I've been homeless, I've been to prison, I, you know, was in a dark heroin Addiction, and here I am, 11 years into recovery, a co-founder of a foundation, uh, working for a treatment center, recovery coach for a police department, working with governors. I mean, the list just keeps going on. And maybe that's not going to be everybody's journey, but the most important piece to share is that you can have peace of mind, that you know you can have relationships back with your family, that you can live a productive life, and if you want to go back to school, go back to school. But Um, We have to stop looking at it like it has to do with willpower. We have to
2: destigmatize it.
0: One more. Brad, do you want to elaborate on what Jessica said a little bit more?
2: I mean, I definitely think breaking the stigma is a huge thing for people to be able to come out and reach their hand up for for, for wanting help. Uh, The communities coming together is so crucial. Um, Doing public speaking engagements and stuff like that, that Jessica and I do, uh, usually gather some people that are afraid to come out um, and kind of participate in these things. Um, and, and we've seen that definitely get stronger over the years since we've been doing this. Uh, when we first started doing it, there'd be one, two, three, or four people come out. I think one of the last events we did, there was close to about 50, 60 people that came out. Um, and, and a lot of people, too, They, when they are hiding within their own four walls of the house, doing stuff like this is so crucial. Um, because it allows them to be able to watch from the privacy of their homes. It allows them to be able to get armed with the facts about themselves or, or somebody that may be struggling, you know, and, and have them see like, hey, here's two people that have, you know, are in recovery, living in long-term recovery, living helpful and, and successful lives. And more importantly, being happy, joyous, and free, you know, uh, from going uh, from from the depths of, of, of hell, you know, right, until the, the heaven that we live in today is nothing short of a miracle. And that's all because we put our hands up for help and said, you know what? Yes, we need some help and we want recovery. And luckily when we did that, there were people there to show us the way, the way that we're doing right now uh, live for other people as well. Um, Wonderful. Just coming out and asking for help. I mean, it, there's so much out there and people want to do this. They really want to help them. For me, I'm a believer of, you know, let's jump down in the hole with them and climb out of the rope, you know, climb up the rope with them. Let's get down in there and on the firing line, and really uh, show that this is possible.
0: Excellent, Aaron. uh, Let me ask you this question, Aaron. Um, You know, I I love. First of all, first of all, I want to give just a quick shout out to. I want to just tip my hat for you, uh, Brad and Jessica, for all that you've overcome, and now you're sharing your story. Um, Somebody out there, maybe listening to this right now. And says, "Oh my gosh, I connect them. They they understand me. They feel me. And now I can now take the next step. And as I said in the beginning, you know, we are a community coming together. We want people to have equal access. Uh, they want to have equitable treatments. And so we want to make sure that people have all the tools necessary for success. So let me ask you this, Dr. Weiner. You know, as we're talking about treatment, you know, you know, an opportunity. Again, I think kind of our charge right now is to keep this message going." how do you think we keep this message going? I mean, once COVID comes down, you know, are we still going to have this, this, this dialogue that we need to have, or is the dialogue going to fall, fall away uh, kind of how it was pre-COVID?
1: Well, that's a really good question. And it's something. so it's one thing that I've noticed, just to, to, to really nail home your point there, is that part of the reason why I'm doing clinical work right now is literally every one of the projects I was working on at a system level stopped. Now, granted, I I am in a hospital system, and COVID is like everything in a hospital right now. However, starting that that back up is going to be something that's very much on my mind after things start to transition back. I mean, we were doing things with opioid denaturing packets. We were doing things with navigation for chemical dependency folks out of the emergency. There were so many different threads. All of them just stopped. Um, I, I know that there's, there's, I mean, all over from, from healthcare to, to legislation, there's all sorts of things that have been put on hold. So we really need to make sure that, that someone, those of us who, who are passionate about this issue, lead the charge when it's, we're able to do that and not say, well, it doesn't matter because there's, there's COVID going on right now. You know, this still has to matter. And all the regular things that, that had been going on prior to this dominating the news cycle in everyone's minds are still there and they're still killing people. Um, Yeah, so we we, we can't let that fall away. And I wanna say one last thing also, uh, jumping onto what what Brad and Jessica were saying, I wanna call out physicians right now because I think that as far as stigma goes, I feel like addiction is like, don't ask, don't tell, where they don't really ask into it or maybe there's like a couple audit screening questions, you know what I'm talking about if you're in medicine and, and that's it, but then you don't ask. And I think people need to recognize that right now Alcohol sales are up 75 percent compared to last year. Anyone coming in, family medicine, internal medicine, or even if you're in a specialty, and think that you know it would be appropriate to ask, just ask the question. Um, it doesn't. It's not an offensive thing. It's important to screen right now.
0: Wonderful, thank you. So what uh, what what I want to do right now is I want to get into something that we do each week on TRL with Dr. G. It's called Myths Versus Facts. It's all about setting the record straight. And I was coming up with this myths versus facts and i was kind of thinking i'm where my physician at but i gotta go okay i gotta think in like you know real talk real terms uh, i've got i got a panel of experts that are passionate about addiction health and recovery and the approaches that are there and so i kind of had to challenge myself a little bit for this one so each week on the show we bring in myths versus facts i say a statement the panelist says myth or fact they give us a few sentences why it's a myth or fact we're gonna keep it going boom 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 we're gonna get through these as many as we can we're all about building trust, and delivering truth. Here we go. Jessica, you get the first statement. Myth or fact? Here we go. Addiction is a bad habit, the result of moral weakness and overindulgence. Myth or fact?
3: Well, we've been talking about that the whole time. That is a myth.
0: And I say so. Please we, explain in a couple sentences. Please explain. It is, yes,
3: it is a myth because it has to do with mental health. It has to do with the physical and it de- definitely depends on, there's those perspectives out there, but the disease component, that this is, you know, an addiction, you, uh, Dr. Weiner talked about the genetic component, um, things in that nature. So we, we know it's not a bad habit. We know it has uh, nothing to do with that habit. In fact, it, that's why it's got its own word, addiction.
0: Wonderful. Here we go. Next statement. This is for you, Brad. I got this one for you. Here we go. Here's a statement. Those recovering from substance use disorders have access to the same support services that were available to them pre-pandemic.
2: It's kind of bordering right in the middle. It's myth and fact. I mean, we do still have like 12-step meetings. It's all gone gone virtual. Um, Everybody is trying to work with what they have right now. I believe a lot of places are up and running to the best of their ability and they're adapting to the situation. Are the best they can. I mean, we will get through this. There is hope and light at the end of the tunnel. Things just might be a little bit different in the present moment. Um, so I would say, you know, it, it is myth um, with a little bit of fact.
0: All right, thank you. All right, here we go, Dr. Weiner, I like this one. Myth or fact? Nobody will voluntarily seek treatment until they've hit rock bottom. Myth or fact?
1: You know, I think there's a little bit of both in there too. And this was alluded to before, you know, really the bottom line is that you have to have a really strong motivating factor because there's a lot of biological, psychological and social factors holding you in place. So until it becomes uh, more uncomfortable, until your fear of staying where you are is more than the fear of going without your substance, which is a very scary idea if you're caught in an addiction, you're not going to move. And so for some people, they do have to lose everything in their life. For some people, they can see the train coming and, and, and make the step beforehand, but you got to have a lot of motivation.
0: All right, here we go. Thank you, Dr. Weiner. Jessica, here's a statement. Myth or fact, you can't force someone into treatment.
3: I would, I would say that's in the middle too because you can technically force somebody in the treatment there i guess is- the
0: court can uh, a court order can force somebody <laughs> so that might
3: be a, a myth because you can now can you make them do the work no but technically i mean i know for a fact cook county has a haymarket in their uh jails so you literally could get locked up into a treatment center <laughs> <So>. <laughs>
0: All right, thank you. Here we go, Brad. Next statement for you. Here we go. We should strive to find the magic bullet to treat all forms of substance use disorders. The one size fits all approach. Myth or fact?
2: I I would say myth. Um, Please explain. Um, Addiction is so case by case. Uh, You have to meet a patient or, or somebody struggling with substance use disorder where they're at. And you have to kind of tailor make their road to recovery from that point forward, whether that's one-on-one therapy, counseling, 12-step programs, refuge recovery, smart recovery. There's so many different options out there to where there isn't ever going to be one magic bullet. Now, if we come up with that, that would be great. But I mean, I think people are so much individuals and have so much different to offer just in life in general, their recovery process has to be tailored to that as well. So they get Wonderful. engaged
0: and they want to uh, enjoy the experience. of the All right. Thank you, Brett. Here we go. We'll do a couple more of these. Here we go. Dr. Weiner, here's a statement for you. All right. Uh, I like this one on this list. Here we go. The longer the pandemic lasts, the more likely patients or clients will relapse. Myth or fact? It's kind of your crystal ball thinking yeah. into the future a little bit.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, I so I, I'm going to go with fact here. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say fact. I think there's, there's added weight. I think that as time goes on, as, as this gets harder, I think there's going to be more people out of jo- Basically, uh, substance use is in many ways a, 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 an unhealthy way of coping with stress and problems and anxiety and pressure. And so if you are genetically predisposed, if you were already starting down that road, the more that this mounts and the more stress that's heaped onto you, I think the more problems that we're gonna see. Our society is already off kind of in the wrong foot in terms of increasing addiction and addictive behaviors in this period. So fortunately, yeah, I think the longer this goes on, the more problems we're gonna see.
0: All right, we'll do one more. Here you go, Jessica, this one's for you. Here's a statement. Uh, We only need to worry about those people who were previously susceptible to substance use disorders Prior to COVID nineteen, myth or fact? Worrying about people only the only people that were susceptible prior to the myth uh, prior to the pandemic. Myth or fact?
3: Man, yeah. definitely man. Please uh, yes, uh, it, people who sub- are susceptible. Uh, there may be addiction forming right now in the middle of the pandemic. I think uh, 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 Doctor Weiner just spoke on that. Is that there? you know people are starting to use it as a coping mechanism to uh, relieve whatever they're going through and and living in the fear. I'm sure that in my own uh, experience I've experienced like high amounts of anxiety and fearful because if you're watching the news 24 7, if you are you know around people that are elderly or that are susceptible to the virus you know, you're in, in fearful. So, if you're living in that state seeking out a uh, substance to use it, uh, you never knew. You're probably opening up a can of worms you didn't know exist. So,
0: all right, there you go, myth versus. Myth versus effects, everyone. So we got about five minutes left, and this has been a great discussion. It's like the time's gone by super fast. Uh, Brad, Jessica, and Dr. Weiner. It's it's like we're just like feeling we just started, but I want to make sure we keep things on time and everything. So we got about five minutes left. Uh, I said in the beginning, we call it the chief complaint, the question of the hour, what we're dealing with uh, in relation to health measures and how it affects addiction rates in the pandemic. Um, We call it the assessment and plan when somebody uh, leaves our office in the traditional medical standpoint. That's when you certainly give somebody a diagnosis. You give them a treatment plan, and you most importantly, schedule a follow-up. So let's bring it on home. So I'll start with you, Brad. Uh, Give us a few kind of closing remarks, kind of take-home points for people to know about the importance of what we're talking about tonight in in addiction as it relates, certainly during this pandemic that we're in. Give us a few take points for people out there that may need to hear a positive message on treatment and opportunity.
2: Sure. I mean, first and foremost, if you're out there, like we've been saying, if you're out there struggling, reach out for help. It's what's going to start you on your road to recovery. Uh, Second of all, if you know somebody out there struggling or if you're struggling as well and they're using opioids, make sure you have naloxone. Like Aaron said, it is the antidote to somebody that is actively overdosing. Um, I think another thing would be important too is, you know, seeing as we have these, um, you know, a lot of these telecounseling things going on, if somebody gets hurt and a doctor prescribes Um, you know, opioids or something like that. Uh, They should also be doing a co-prescription of of naloxone. So they're also having that antidote ready at their disposal. And also with that being said, it also draws some red flags for whoever's receiving that prescription. So kind of maybe take a step back and say, do I really need these? Are these things really going to help me or are they going to hurt me? Because they're literally giving me the antidote here. Um, And then I, I guess last is hope there is so much hope out there. Uh, Jessica and myself are living examples of that. You know, we will get through this pandemic um, with, with living in long-term recovery, you know, going uh, full force with really trying to help as many people as we can right now. And if you're kind of on that teeter-totter, um, am I going to get through the summer or am I not? Know that yes, you will, and, and reach out for help because there are people out there wanting
0: Thank you, Brad. It's been a pleasure. Jessica, give us a few closing remarks about what people should take away from today's conversation and talk about treatment and opportunity.
3: Well, well, since I can't say ditto at what Brad said, you, can. Um, you know, just to kind of, I guess piggyback, almost saying the same thing, I think it's important for us to know what our resources are. Uh, we're in uh, uncharted territory. And uh, there be, may be some scary things going around while we're in a shelter in place, but know that we're here to help. You're, you're not alone. That's so important, you're not alone. I know there's loneliness going on right now. Somebody who's watching this, who's home by themselves, who may be drinking, who knows. Um, there is help, we wanna help. That um, because there is such a deadly, you know, fear that is penetrating our society uh know that we as professionals are still here and we want to help we're a foundation that wants to help i am a person another woman uh if you need to talk sometimes it just takes that just to talk to get out of your own head Um, one of the things that i want to put out there is that the 516 light foundation Light stands for living in great hope today. So know that you can join us in living in great hope today.
0: Wonderful, thank you, Jessica. It's been a pleasure having you on the show, Dr. Weiner. Give us a few take-home points today, really targeting you know the opportunity that's at hand.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So first, let me say I, I think you need to have like um, annual physical shows where they go like ninety minutes or maybe. You know, like the ones that are like the 30-minute blocks in the office. And say,
0: <laughs> it's, hey, it's that G- con- concierge stuff. There you go. <laughs> yeah, you
1: know what I'm saying? Because it's like we're, we're online right now. You can do whatever you want. You know, all, I'll, I'll, all rules are up. <laughs> um, but, but, but that part aside, um, I want to second what Brad said. Um, that's a great example, actually. There, there's a piece of legislation coming out soon talking about co-prescribing of naloxone, the antidote to an overdose. This is a great example of a time when we as a society, as a legislator, need to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time where we can't just let things fall out just because we've got COVID right in front of us. And I I think that that's gonna be all of our tasks in a lot of different facets. And certainly um, this is one of them where we've been making such good progress, we don't wanna let that fall. Um, That said, uh, in terms of um, anyone who might be having their own thoughts or questions about their use right now, I I feel like what happened when this first broke and when the the, uh, shelter in place order went out was people kind of gave everything like a free pass for like a week where they're like, yeah, I'm going to do what I, like, almost like it was the end of the world, like there was going to be a big tidal wave, and so it's like, yeah, kids can watch as much TV as they want, and eat, you know, I'll eat ice cream every night, but it's like, we're at a place now where this is kind of the new normal for a while, and realize that just because you don't have COVID doesn't mean that your problems don't matter. The hospital systems, treatment centers like Banyan, Linden Oaks, we are taking every possible precaution to keep people safe, far and above maybe what you'd expect because we, we, you still need that help. If you have an active addiction, you can't just sit on it and be like, "Yeah, I'll wait till this blows over. Because honestly, we might not have, say, like a vaccine for a while, you know, like this could be a long way off. So don't put yourself down, don't discount your problem. Um, it's real and there's help and we are as safe as we possibly can, don't let it grow in your house. Make sure you get, you get some help and reach out.
0: Thank you, Dr. Weiner. And my final words are this, never stop investing in you you are your best self even though there may be times of trial and despair and uncertainty certainly what we're dealing with right now there is a hidden opportunity the silver lining is there there are people that are there for you tall health care has not stopped it continues to go on and i want people to hear that loud and clear the best thing you could do after today hearing this message is to share this message with others Share it with those that need to hear this. It's the only way that we can reach everyone. As the saying goes, it takes a village. And it takes a village to combat the the downsides of addiction and create more opportunities for all of us to live healthy and better lives together with our loved ones. So I wanna thank my guests today. It's been awesome. Dr. Aaron Weiner, PhD, ABPP, board certified psychologist and director of addiction services at Linden Oaks Behavioral Health. Check them out at www.eehealth.org. I wanna thank Brad and Jessica Gerke, co-founders of 516 Light Foundation. Check them out, www.516lightfoundation.org. Uh, they've just been an amazing group of people to talk to. Hey, you guys have been listening live. Here on Facebook. This episode is written by MD e. Gomez, MD, and Tiffany ER Gomez. Music is by the wonderful Mr. Havis. Producer is Tiffany ER Gomez. Copyright 2020 by Image LLC, all rights reserved. It's been a pleasure, everybody. Stay tuned for my show next week. COVID. it continues. We're doing from the front lines. Check me out my website www.markomez.com. I'll see you guys next week. Stay well, stay healthy. Peace.